You're listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. Corey Hancock knows what it's like to live in two different worlds at the same time. An environmental scientist by trade, Corey was born and raised on a large cattle property in Queensland. It was his belief that agriculture, in particular cattle farming, was a part of the solution to environmental problems and not the cause that led him down the path of advocacy. He knew it wouldn't be easy to draw a crowd talking about the environment, so he created an online alter ego called The Environmental Cowboy. By his own admission, The Environmental Cowboy was an over-sexualised, self-deprecating character who used humour and sex appeal to draw an audience. But it worked. It really did. And he was reaching millions of people around the world each week. So, why did he walk away from the environmental cowboy and leave his advocacy mission behind? In this episode, for the first time ever, Corey shares the tale of the birth and death of the environmental cowboy. It was an absolute privilege to be the first platform he has shared this story with, and I think you'll be surprised throughout our chat. To start our conversation, I asked Corey to take me back to his childhood. I grew up on a cattle station in central Queensland near Carnarvon Gorge and I used to go down to the creek with a bird watcher's journal at eight years old and I just sat there for hours on end just watching them, observing them and writing down all their behaviours and then I had a a scientific uh, identification book as well so I would know the birds off by heart so if you grew up on a cattle station and you were into birds, were you as equally interested in the cattle and everything else going on on the station? Yes, specifically because I loved horses and horse riding. We, we didn't use um, motorbikes, we used horses and that connection to animals and the way that my horse interacted with that beast was really um, um, quite poetic, I think. And I remember specifically my dad gave me a horse called Snip and it was a, a, a rubbish horse in any um, anyone's sort of definition of what a, a good horse should should be. It was bought from the neighbours at three or four years old, and every time you used to get on it, it would pig root and carry on. It was really sour uh, kind of horse. Everyone hated it, and I had to ride it day on end for two or three weeks straight, right? And and so like our country is really thick forested so you could ride you know 100 meters past a a mob of of cattle and you wouldn't see them so we would just go for days on end sometimes without seeing cattle so i I was just stuck with this horse pig rooting up the back while everyone else my brother and sister were on these really nice horses and my dad said i was the best rider at the time um so i had to stick with it 
I had to learn how to bring out the best in that horse. And I realised when we finally did find some cattle after a while that that horse would really zone in and focus on those cattle. It really enjoyed mustering. It really loved galloping through the trees and it was so beautiful to sit on its back and just go at, at a flat gallop through these trees, guiding after these cattle. It was zeroed in. It was hyper-focused on, on the cattle itself. So I started to really work out how to bring out the best in that horse um, and look beyond its surface behaviour. And that's how I sort of grew a natural interest in cattle. And the, the other point that I grew an interest for was um, when my dad sort of said to me, you can only do what the land permits you to do. And so you can't run, you know, over a thousand head of cattle on this particular block that we had. It was 30,000 acres, but it was very fragile sort of country. And if you ran too many cattle, then um, you could go into drought yourself without it actually being a drought, but you could overgraze, etc. And so you, that's over doing it. You can't actually do that. And, and, um, I sort of learned sustainability from a young age. I learned that what we do on the land directly impacts nature and directly impacts everything around us. And, and the cattle are an effective tool or they could be an destructive tool, d- destructive tool, depending on which way you look at it. You sound like a very insightful eight-year-old or child, you know, between the bird watching and and then looking at your horse more than something just to jump on and go for flat-out hooning fun and then kind of learning about how, you know, cattle and the environment interacts. It sounds like you were quite insightful, whereas I guess I just imagine a young boy growing up on a property being all like, you know, jumping on a motorbike, hooning, you know, like going hunting, fishing, you know, just being – a little boy. I, I did my fair share of that, trust me, uh, as well. I was a little terror of a kid. Um, I, <laughs> I used to, uh, my dad used to yell at me. I used to tear down uh, the side of a, a mountain gorge on, on this horse. It was completely risky. I was just fearless. You know, you just growing up on that type of remote cattle station where there was no one else around me but my brother and sister and my, and my parents, I learned how to become who I was. I was allowed to develop myself um, and my interests, my natural interests, and progress that naturally. So I guess I don't think I was that insightful at eight, <laughs> at eight years old, but I think later on that came. I think I started to look back to my childhood to derive, to f- try and find out who I was as a person. Uh, and, I, and I looked back to my childhood. I said, well, how was I brought up? You know, what, what are the values that were instilled in me and what were my natural interests that I can bring into my career and my life right now? Where do you fall in the pecking line with your siblings? My brother is now one of the best horse riders in Australia, so I would say that I'm pretty low, low down there. Now he, he's um, he's doing really well. Uh, Natural Liberty, sort of, he runs a lot of clinics and stuff, and he has been named the one of the best horse breakers in in um, in Australia and New Zealand a, a couple of times in various competitions. And, and my sister is. Uh, a social community manager advisor in on the Sunshine Coast, and um, I'm an environmental scientist. So I guess we all became very, very different people, um, and it goes back to that reason why we, uh, we we just were allowed to become exactly who we were meant to become. We weren't influenced by um, too many people around us because we just didn't have that growing up. We had each other and we had the bush. And the bush can bring out um, incredible natural insights and um, values in someone that wouldn't be normally brought out and living in a in an urban area necessarily. 
I know I really want to get your parents on the show and ask them how they raised a child that at eight years old would just go and entertain themselves in the creek and like watch birds and not have to have a tablet or a toy. And as somebody who's about to have a child, I'm like, how do you make them do that? Uh, I, they didn't make me do that. They were trying to prevent me from doing that half the time. I would li- look, we were homeschooled and uh, I, I would leave the classroom most of the time. And uh, when, once I finished my work, you know, there was a lunchtime, we had a, a half hour lesson on the two way radio uh, through Charleville distance education. And once I'd finished that, I was gone. I was out the door and they were trying to get me to do chores and the rest of it, which I, which I always had to do because growing up, um, you know, if we didn't chop the wood, for example, and feed the the fire then we had cold showers that night and it got freezing out there at night so there were certain things and that i had to do uh to, in order to live on the land like many people would understand that type of concept uh, that others wouldn't necessarily have to do you know you can turn the hot shower on in cities and um every night you don't have to do anything for it necessarily so but yeah I, there was no real sort of boundaries set on me i was allowed to go out and explore on my own and go camping with the dogs and the horses and and it was a pretty free life to be honest and it was a it was a beautiful life to to grow up in i, I would say just because it's allowed me to become exactly who i am here today I did ask you earlier if you were as interested in the cattle and the, I suppose, the production side of the cattle station as you were in the wildlife, because I just find it interesting that you grew up on a cattle station, but you've gone down the path of environmental science, which I suppose isn't, I mean, it's still obviously very much in touch with nature, but often we see people, uh, if they're going to stay kind of in that area, stay in agriculture. So how did you, I guess, as a kid that loved that work with cattle and horses, how did you end up going down, in, I guess, environmental science instead of agricultural science? Uh, the, the two uh, mix together. They interconnect. And I, I, I did learn that from a very young age through a couple of different ways, actually. The, the first way was probably the most impactful that I, I remember the most vividly. And uh, we were going through a five or six year drought at the time. And at the peak of that drought, our next door neighbours, they had a, a, a daughter and we used to go over to their place a, a couple of times. They were about an hour down the road and there was literally no warning for, for what was about to happen. But, um, my dad got a phone call at four o'clock in the morning and the wife just said, you just need to come here. And the husband, the father had shot himself at four o'clock in the morning. And unfortunately that is just way too common a story in rural areas. And I, it just imprinted in me that we are deeply connected to nature. That was at the peak of the drought. He, he thought that he, his family was better off without him, which is, of course, not true. But at the peak of the drought, the financial hardship that they were going through, he couldn't see a way through. And I sort of learned that direct connection that we have to nature. And that was pretty, you know, um, that was a very vivid, very intrinsically burned into my mind that that memory and so that's probably the core the core reason why i do what i do now is i wanted to understand that interaction with nature i wanted to understand how we could do it better so that naturally led me to environmental science career but the other um, value that i started to learn and started to incorporate into my work now is I was very lucky that I got to explore the Aboriginal rock art that was all throughout creeks and rivers. And Dad was mates with Graham Walsh, who was Australia's greatest rock art expert at the time. 
Now, he came up with a theory that the left hand painted on the sandstone walls was a symbol for giving power back to the earth, and the right hand was for receiving power. And so I naturally became interested in Indigenous cultures and and values. So I, I studied this, and I learned that in every Indigenous culture around the world, they have a similar concept like this, like the Lion King's circle of life. They saw themselves as a part of nature, and all of their management, their land management practices worked off the back of that. And they, they dedicated their entire lives, their, their cultures to understanding how they as humans were a part of that process. They saw themselves as stewards of the land, which is very, very different to the Western culture and the way that we currently do business. We, we dominate nature. We clear land. We extract it. In, in all mining, for example, we're actually extracting out of nature. Now, those, those, um, circle of life type concepts that they understood that in order to take from the land, you had to give back to it. And so that's why uh, I started my own carbon agricultural company because I wanted to instill those type of values in in those processes, I, I guess. And so those two reasons are probably the core reasons why I do what I do now is because I understood the direct connection that we have to nature and I wanted to help people understand how we can manage land better to have a better quality life overall. I can't imagine what it would have been like going through that experience. And, and even then you were on the periphery of that. Like I, God forbid that poor man's family, what they went through. But as a child, how do you even start to process that? I imagine you have one level of understanding, but as you get older and you learn more and then, you know, adults will tell you more, it kind of would change and evolve. But it sounds also like your parents had a big influence on you with the way that they, like you said earlier, that your dad had taught you about, you know, to use cattle as a tool and if, you know, that you can only push it so far. And it sounds like he was kind of on this similar mindset to you as well. Yeah, he ran, you know, ecotourism and, and programs for disadvantaged youth and stuff. So he definitely had a, had a big part to play in the diversity that I now have as a, as a career, but it, it definitely came more later in life, you know, um, and I think cattle in particular have been vilified and red meat has been vilified, and I just didn't feel that that was right. I felt like we were missing part of the answer, and I didn't really know what that answer was, you know. And uh, so I went on this regenerative journey, I guess, is to understand how we can do agriculture better. And that, that's when I came across regenerative agriculture as this sort of – it's becoming quite hot topic right now. It's It's a way to – use cattle in particular, livestock, in a more effective manner that can actually regenerate land, not degenerate it. It really depends on how you manage cattle in particular. So, yeah, I I guess I just became interested in in that and I built an entire career around Regen Ag. It sounds like you had a fairly blissful childhood in a way, obviously notwithstanding that fairly significant and, and traumatic experience seeing what could happen in the community. So as you and you were were you homeschooled uh during high school as well or did you head off to boarding school then? No, I went to um Roma and, and high school there where I learned to play football, I guess, and uh I became school captain and did all those sort of normal things that a that a kid should normally do. And I sort of learnt those social interactions and I was influenced, I guess, and that sort of set me on a trajectory into the University of the Sunshine Coast, where I studied a double degree in environmental science and environmental planning. And then I went into 
my 12, now 12 year environmental industry career. And I've worked across, you know, a number of different industries, but mainly mining and, and, and agriculture. So when you were at the end of school and you were picking your degree, what stood out to you about environmental science? Because I suppose, and this is just me, I may be plain devil's advocate, but sometimes I feel like the connotations that come from the word environment or environmental science is very like greenies, you know, people chaining themselves to trees and, and in a way, and this, this is probably just me projecting my own experiences rather than speaking on behalf of society, but I feel like it can be quite divisive. Like if you're an environmental science person, then you're like not an ag science person or, you know, it's, it's very one or the other. I think that stuff that you're talking about came later on where there is a very definitive line between being an environmental advocate and an industry professional. And I danced on that line <laughs> in the middle between that advocacy public sort of education advocacy world and the industry because I was an industry, well, I still am an industry professional. And it was that became difficult for me, especially because I started this online persona to communicate those messages. And it, there was, it just became extremely difficult in that sense where um, there is one side to the argument is where no one likes mining and no one likes cattle and no one likes agriculture, but I'm working full-time in those industries. So I was trying to be the messenger, I guess, the communicator of the science pieces and what I was learning along the way. And what I was learning was changing, by the way, like environmental science does. Any good science does, it changes over over a period of time. And I was trying to communicate those messages and it was it was very, very challenging, I can, I can tell you. And, um, I had to move away from it, uh, eventually just because it was so challenging to get those messages across to the public in particular. Yeah. I feel like, and, it, and it's funny because it's just a word, but it can really, uh, sort of, I guess, erode in a way. I'm not saying this is what happened in your case, but you hear, you hear a word like, uh, environmental or environmental scientist and you think, well, well, they only know about the environment. They actually don't know anything about production or, you know, I feel like it, historically there have been people that you're either one or the other, whereas you've got the background of the uh, ag production and being on the ground and then you've got this environmental science. So you're actually well placed to talk about these things. But I may, maybe honestly, I'm probably just projecting my own bias where sometimes I, I see something come like, oh yeah, cool. Well, you probably just sit in an office with a PhD, like, what have you done? Not, not with you. Sorry. <laughs> like, <laughs> definitely didn't think that with you, but it, but it's interesting to, to, yes, I guess it, it's a different pathway of communication than some, than what else we see, I guess. Uh, oh, it is. And I, I definitely argue with those people that you're talking about. There are environmental scientists and advocates online that advocate directly against cattle and agriculture. And just because I know better, like I'm implementing it on the ground, I'm the one seeing this stuff uh, and they do sit in offices and just read a peer-reviewed journal science article and make their conclusions drawn on that. Whereas I, I just got um, so frustrated that I would be challenging these guys just saying, come out with me. I'll, I'll pay for you to come out on these cattle stations for two weeks, you know, and, and come and see what we do on the land. Come and see these carbon projects. Come and see the way that in which we use cattle to reduce bushfire risk, to manage, revive land um, more effectively, regenerate soils and forests. Like we're doing all this good stuff, increasing biodiversity. We're, we're, um, um, uh, uh, sort of, 
um, working with Indigenous communities as well, like putting efforts and, and um, more stuff back into community and creating that uh, that unity that we're talking about, not, not division. So it was really hard to communicate that message. And to be honest, I just had to step away from it altogether just because it was becoming so frustrating and I had to, to, to choose between industry and, and advocacy because it was quite important to me talking about these messages and communicating these messages because when I first started my career, right, I sort of learned that exactly what you're saying. People didn't really listen to the environmental messages very well, especially with climate change, right? Like it was, it was a very hot controversial topic at the time when I first started my my career and no one really believed in it and all the work that I was doing was working towards contributing contributing in a positive way to climate change and so I got very frustrated so I was trying to communicate those messages that agriculture could be part of that solution right so I, I sort of developed this uh, persona called the environmental cowboy and it was um, a mixture of humor and um, uh, science and an over-sexualized character, I would, I would say. <laughs> Don't worry, I've got that on my list to ask you about. <laughs> <laughs> to communicate these messages. But I found myself in a dance between industry and, and that public advocacy world where people were watching my every move. They were watching to see if I was, had a higher place, um, plant-based diet. And if I did eat red meat, why? You know, I would get criticized for that. And then the other side, you know, the, 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 the cattle industry was sort of criticizing me as well, going, you're advocating for higher plant-based diets. And I sat right in the middle. Like my opinion on between vegan and meat eater sort of diets was very in the middle. I was saying, that we, we need both to, to reduce the demand for meat, to work, work away from conventional methods into ones that are more regenerative. So at the time, that was my position. I was saying, yes, we, we shouldn't be eating meat from feedlots, et cetera. We should be, you know, um, promoting that grass fed regenerative sort of, sort of model. And so in the interim, you can have a higher plant based diet. And so that was my position on it. And I just got criticized left, right and center. I tried to be, I was tried to be canceled in, in America. The cancel culture just got too big for me. And there was, there was one particular incident a couple of years ago where I just had to sit back and go, I'm, I am too far in this. And I had to back out. I mean, I was making mistakes as well. Like it's not just cancel culture. It was really. I was getting so caught up in the messages and so caught up in my own ambitions and, and cause I was, I became hyper focused on career and the trajectory that I wanted to take in my career. And I started to become pretty well known. I think you could say like I was, I was just starting to become, um, a bit of a spokesperson for, for both of these type of groups. And I didn't have the resources in order to cope with some of the things that were being thrown at me. And I was definitely making mistakes along the way in the way that I treated people and the way that I spoke to people because I was just missing things. You just can't do everything. And I was trying to do everything. So I just had to step back and I, I got rid of the cowboy persona a, cu a couple of years ago because that council culture got just too strong for me, but also I needed to relearn uh, who I was as a person. I needed to go back to my roots of why I started this. It wasn't to be an online famous person on Instagram or whatever. It was to communicate these messages. And I just realized that I, I 
I got to a point where I wasn't doing that anymore. I was just trying to get videos to go viral, you know, and, and I was hooked on that addiction of social media and trying to trying to become get my messages portrayed in a in a more viral to, to reach millions of people rather than the than the, the one I was. Um, it was always a never ending story of becoming bigger and better, and it wasn't serving me anymore. And it certainly wasn't serving other people anymore, I think, because it just, the, the messages started to get lost. So I, I got rid of that and I started to, um, I just changed everything to myself. And, um, I've been on a, a two year journey of trying to find or, or rediscover, I think you would say, all those values that I'm talking about, rediscover my childhood and, and who I am deep down and who I want to be in the future. And I, I think you, you face, some particularly scary things when you go down that path of rediscovery. You discover things that you don't like about yourself and you discover things that you do like about yourself. I mean, Carl Jung, the famous psychologist, says that there's a shadow in all of us and it goes down all the way to the roots of hell. And if you are brave enough to discover that in yourself, then you will have the ability to be able to control it. And so that's that's what I've done the last two years. I've gone on a, a journey of uh, rediscovery of who I am as a person and who I want to be in the future. And especially because I'm still in the public eye a little bit, I still want to show that I can improve, I can be a better person along the way. I know you said you didn't feel particularly insightful as an eight-year-old, but man, in your 20s and 30s, like to, to pick up on that, and after a relatively short period of time, I feel people go decades before they have that insight or they might not even realise it until they're old, like when they go down that path. And I think advocacy is one thing, but advocacy with social media is a whole different beast. And it sounded like you were just on this hamster wheel, like just going around and round and round and trying to keep up pace. And, and I can certainly relate to that in some sense. But, you know, the thing with social media is, is that, there's no office hours and there's no office to go to. You can do it anywhere, anytime. And it kind of just has no boundaries in a way. So it can be really consuming because you'll wake up and you'll check that notification and, or you'll have an idea and you can go do it right then and there rather than having to. And you can also do it, I guess, on your own rather than say back in the old days, if somebody was running a PR campaign, you'd go into the office, you'd sit around the board table, you'd talk about some ideas, you'd make a plan, you'd do it. And wow, that just sounds really intense as well. Like you kind of ended up in a really hard spot. And I just think that it's very, there was a lot of humility there to be able to acknowledge that you were chasing uh, views and being viral and that you recognized that you'd kind of wandered off the path you initially set out on. It takes a lot to acknowledge that. Yeah. I mean, I had to take accountability and uh, because I really was making mistakes and I had to take accountability for what I could take accountability for. And, and cause I didn't want to be that person. I, I was actually for a couple of years there, even before I got rid of the environmental cowboy, I was becoming deeply unhappy. And it just got to a point where I was forced to look at myself in a different way. And I did go to a very dark place for a little while. And there were a couple of things that, that got me out of that dark place. I, I got a dog and because I, I mean, I'd been so hyper focused on career and, and I'd say like that there's probably a, a very small portion of men in particular that will become hyper focused on their career and that's all they do. And they, they will get to the top 
through doing that if you if you concentrate and become very ambitious in career and i was i was one of those those men that, that did that but you miss the 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 beautiful things of life around us and i i had no balance i was only focused on career and so i i had to change my neurology i was hardwired in a certain way to think a certain way to think about myself and what is best for me moving forward in in my career and all those decisions all the decisions i didn't have anyone didn't have a girlfriend didn't have um, anything to look after but myself so i had to get myself out of that way of thinking so this dog uh, just you know she just helped me understand and make decisions that were not about me anymore. You know, when I go away and travel, I have to think about where she's um, best placed and have to look after her. It just got me out of that way of thinking. So that was the first thing that I did is I think it's important to understand that you just have to get out of your own body, your own suffering. And the second thing I did was I tried to find the light in dark situations. And I think if you can find the light, if you can laugh learn to laugh and learn to smile at the little things in life then you you win you're winning life if you can if you can um bring out the best in other people and bring out the best in yourself like uh, going back to that story of of my horse when i, I grew up then you're winning as well and, and i think those two things together and also there's a third thing actually is that i did everything myself for 10 years. My, my entire career was based on my perception of what I needed to do and making mistakes. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't like, I would fall down. I had that sort of fall down eight times, get up nine mentality. And, and so you win after that. And, but I wouldn't reflect on my mistakes or my failings. Uh, I wouldn't take long. I, I'd get straight back up. You know, this time I really sat there for a little bit and I really wondered what happened. And when you do that, you really go deep into your soul and you take accountability for what you cannot take accountability for and then you move forward. But in order to do that too, I talked to a lot of different people. And I know that Bruce Lee became the best fighter in the world because he didn't just focus on one style of fighting, right? He He looked at a number of different styles of fighting and he incorporated the best styles of each fight technique into his own technique. And that's what I did. I talked to a lot of different people that I respected and, and, um, I got different perspectives this time rather than trying to do it myself. I said that wasn't healthy anymore. That wasn't working. And so that, that was the third thing that I did. I, I surrounded myself with beautiful people that I love and respect and, and, uh, that helped me and supported me through that and still doing that. It's a never ending journey, right? Of self improvement and, and trying to contribute in a positive, more positive way to the world around me. And just, uh, what I was doing, uh, wasn't working in the way that I wanted it to anymore. And, um, uh, that's what life is, right? Is if something's not working, you just change your direction. And that's all I did. In the end, really, is just change direction. And I am a much happier, more balanced person now than what I was. I'm less ambitious. I'm still ambitious. I've still got that in me. I've still got goals that I want to achieve and things that I want to do. But I am seeing – it's like I've opened my eyes up for the first time in my life where I'm seeing all the beautiful things around me that I once missed, like having a dog and going for a walk on the beach. I mean, I never – would have done that. I never would have had the time to do that. I was the type of person to try and speed up my microwaved meal so that I could work more, right? <laughs> Trying to get it from five minutes down to 
two minutes. <laughs> it was just ridiculous what I was doing. It's such an unhealthy way to live life. And it got me a long way in career, but it doesn't get you a long way in anything else. So I guess that's the journey that I've been on the last couple of years is just developing myself more personally and trying to become a person that, that, um, that lights up the room when, when you walk in, you know, like so- someone that gives love and light and energy to other people rather than, uh, what I was doing, I guess, on social media is, is maybe taking a little bit and not really recognizing that within myself. They say, you know, um, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. But I, I disagree with that because I think it, when you are privileged enough to work in a space that you're truly passionate about, it can become so consuming. I actually took a bit of a break last year and I worked in a warehouse of a bulk food distributor. Like I was still doing the podcast and photography, but I would just rock up to this warehouse every day. It was kind of like a click and collect, but for cattle stations and Aboriginal communities and and I just tuned out, put on a podcast, and that was the happiest I've been in a workplace in a long time because in other roles, sometimes like when you care so much about what you're doing, like when I worked in the ag department or just just anything in industry, you care so much and then when things aren't working out and you get so invested in it, like I left a job because I was incredibly burnt out after two years because I just was hell-bent, so invested in everything. And I used to take phone calls at 5 o'clock in the morning at home, like, this is a government role, like, no one expected <laughs> you to be awake at 5 a.m., um, do things on weekends. And then when things weren't happening, like, it just eats away at you. So, I wonder also, would you – I guess it sounds – well, it does sound like you went through a phase of burnout. Do you think it's more so because it was tied to social media and that – immediacy, um, you know, it's a 24-hour cycle or even shorter, but, you know, you, you can do things 24 hours. Or Also, I just wonder if it was what you were advocating for because sometimes I think, I just want to be a hairdresser. <laughs> no disrespect to hairdressers or or I just want to work at Woolies. I don't want to think about the problems of the world and I don't want to be that invested in them and I don't want to try and change them and be a part of it. And for me, like, my passion is animal welfare. But for you, like, um, you know, climate change is so – combative for people it's very divisive it's polarizing and it's a real problem so obviously and you're quite passionate about it but it's a hard topic you know like i feel like people who are working in spaces say whether it's you know refugees or um, domestic violence or whatever you know in certain areas are more prone to burnout because they're such hard topics to you know like if somebody worked in child protection like you surely could only do that for so long before you just kind of get cooked yeah uh that's yeah exactly there's a couple of things there for me i was in very high pressure roles for a long time i was in leadership roles in these big mining companies so that was just ongoing and then i was trying to do this stuff off the side you know and and then getting criticized for it uh, as well because of all those reasons you know and i started to learn about human behavior and psychology to try and improve that so move away from the climate change problem and arguing about the problem and into solutions like what are the solutions so that's what I, i sort of tended to focus on but in the end i had to pick a side you know, was I going to be in the industry or was I going to be a, a public advocate and keep on fighting with people online and, and everything and everything else just because they didn't understand how industry worked or whatever it was, you know? And I was becoming increasingly frustrated with that world is just 
not being able to communicate these messages properly and arguing with people and threads on comments or whatever it was, you know, it was just, it was just too much. And I picked a side in the end. I, I picked the industry and I'm now just a straight industry professional. And I only talk at industry events. Like we're, we're here now at the Northern Australia Food Futures Conference. I'm, I'm speaking here and, uh, and I only pick those type of things to speak and, and talk at now with indust- other industry professionals. I don't delve into that world anymore, into that public life. And I tell you what, it's become a lot easier. Everything for me has become a lot easier since I've stopped that. You just don't get the noise around you and you have the ability to be able to think. You have the ability to be able to focus entirely on your career. And I have chosen hobbies now also that have got me outside of work. Well, I just don't think about work as much. It doesn't consume me like it used to. And one of those hobbies is, um, is free diving. I'm, uh, you know, coming from the, uh, a cattle station originally, I just wasn't much of an ocean person. I definitely wasn't a surfer. You know, I tried to in Noosa in the uni days and, and, uh, the boys would take me out in these massive waves. That was the only time they took me out. I had a tiny little shortboard and I'd get smashed against the rocks time and time again. I spent my whole time paddling. I'd be bleeding and then I'd be worrying about sharks, you know, in the water. It was just a, a terrible experience for me. But then. I discovered scuba diving where I went underneath the water and I discovered a whole nother world down there. And even furthermore, I felt like a bit of an alien down there with bubbles all going around me from the tank and everything. And I thought there's got to be more to this. And then I discovered free diving, right? So I've been uh, getting coached in free diving this year to dive as deep as I can go. I can, I can now go 30 meters. I can hold my breath for four minutes, static hold within that you have to face a number of different things. You have to face your ego down there. You have to face your fear and anxiety because it's all about meditation on the surface and then going down deep into, into the ocean. And my coach at the time, he, he said, well, you know, he asked me a question. What's the difference between scuba diving and free diving? And I said, the obvious answer was well, scuba. You've got a tank on your back and free diving. You go down and try and hold your breath. And he goes, no, no, no. Um, scuba, you go down and you look around you. Free diving, you go down and you look within you. And it, it's, it was really true for me is that I had to learn to, cause I was ambitious. I'm competitive. So I was trying to dive deeper and deeper and deeper and hold my breath for longer, but your ego will take over and you can actually drown down there. You can, you can black out, right? So you have to understand your body and your, your mental limits and you have to practice time and time again. And it's about controlling your heart rate on the surface and controlling all your fear and letting go. Letting go was a really big one for me. I had to let go of everything that I had done. I had to let go of all my anxiety and my fear. And then I had to face it, right? And facing it is diving, diving down and seeing this incredible world once you're, once you're down there and learning to control that fear and anxiety all along the way. So I think that was a really, um, incredible process for me in particular this year that i've been through is just finding other things in life that help you in other ways to personally develop you in in ways that i would have never have done before just because i would i was so hyper focused on career i just didn't have the time to do that i guess you've spoken to a degree about i suppose the end of the environmental cowboy and and the changes you need to make in your life 
uh, because of the, and excuse the pun, the toxic environment around, you know, your advocacy work. I had thought about that a few minutes ago and I was like, oh, please don't forget. Please don't forget. I'm really proud of that one. one. But I, I, again, saying that, you know, we're not going linear. We're kind of going all squiggly line, uh, in this episode. I just, you know, before I eventually let you go, if we can just go back and I just want to learn a little bit about the birth of the environmental cowboy, because I suppose that is how I, know of you and how I knew to, you know, that's somebody I wanted to have on the podcast, not because of your work as the environmental cowboy, but that's just how I know you exist. Um, cause you were this character and this, uh, very well followed person on social media. So is this something you, I'm guessing you didn't come out of university, you know, into your first job being like, I want to be a, a influencer in this space. Like when, at what point in your career did you kind of, want to start going from doing like just the actual work to talking about it with the broader public? Yeah, I think this answer is going to surprise you, to be honest. The answer that the first part or the second part of that question is basically, yeah, I mean, I just wanted to communicate these messages more effectively. I knew that 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 could be done through humour. If we use humour, people are 80% more likely to retain that information. I wasn't funny at the time. I had to try and learn that. But I guess the environmental cowboy was born, and this is the answer that's going to surprise you. It was born out of complete insecurity within myself. I was so insecure, I wanted to be validated, and I thought that I needed to achieve in order to receive love. And that's where that external validation came from. So, yes, it had a very good underlying message, and that's what drove me for so long. I mean, if I didn't have that bigger purpose than myself, then I wouldn't have lasted so long. But there was also um, a deeper underlying root cause of just um, deep insecurity there of not being enough. And I think a lot of people have that of not not being enough in the world or not thinking that you are enough. And I just went on this – I mean, the environmental cowboy was great. So, as you say, you wouldn't have known about me otherwise. It really did projects me into a world that I and gave me opportunities that I wouldn't have otherwise had. I'm definitely grateful for those opportunities. I'm definitely grateful that I took on that path. I'm just on another path now. And it was uh I just found that that toxic culture that you speak of, it, it, we are obsessed with celebrities. <laughs> obsessed. I think it's such an unhealthy obsession and I was not born to be in that limelight. I had to learn stuff. Uh, I had to learn how to um, conduct myself and I didn't have anyone at the time. I mean, I worked in very remote areas by myself and had no friends or family around and I was very alone for a long time, I think, and having to sort through a lot of this stuff of being in the in the public limelight. And it's not like I was super famous or anything, but nothing like, you know, Chris Hemsworth. I don't know how these guys deal with it. but I did have a thought on the drive up here to Darwin. I was like, I'm going to introduce him as like, the Thor of environmental science. (laughs) Well, I guess um, it's funny. It's funny you say that because um, it was kind of derived. A lot, a lot of the stuff was derived from Russell, both Russell Coit and Magic Mike. Yeah. I was going to say there was an awful, I do remember when I first came across you, I was like, this guy doesn't wear a shirt very often. Yeah, (laughs) But hey, if you've got it, flaunt it. (laughs) Magic Mike was um, definitely a big part of it. That um, theatrical sort of experience that I wanted to create. It was a pure entertainment to communicate an environmental message in a different way. And it worked, right? It worked. You've got to do something different. I mean, David Attenborough has got, you know, 
I don't know the word I'm looking for, but say the lockdown on being like the old adorable man with an accent who's not necessarily attractive, but we all love him. So if you want to make as much of an impact or, or whatnot, you know, like that, that look, that thing has already been taken. You kind of got to go for something else. So, and you work with what you got. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it taught me a lot about communication. It taught me how to be funny. I, like I said, I was not naturally funny. I had to learn all this stuff. Um, I had to, I mean, I sat there for months writing these scripts of videos and stuff. And then I had to work on camera and try the comedic timing. It was a completely new skill set and it, it definitely improved my communication skills. And, uh, I don't regret it in that sense. I guess it's a really good, uh, in terms of the magic mic, I don't know if you've seen the third magic mic. Oh, it's freaking horrendous. Have you seen it? Oh. Oh my God. See, I'm see so that? depressed. Really? Yeah. I see. I actually thought the opposite. <laughs> I, the, the first two movies, right? So this is, this is my perspective. Cause you're on a man. It. Yeah. I'm yeah, a woman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Probably. So the first two movies, right? It is basically your typical male strip show sort of movie what you'd expect that's what we want yeah exactly and that's that's, why i didn't like the third one exactly and that's what the environmental cowboy was right it was i was giving people what they wanted it wasn't necessarily what i wanted now if you look at channing tatum he is a very very good dancer and i don't think it was completely expressed in those first two movies in the third movie it was completely a theatrical experience it was a it was a incredible dance between two people and it was more about the magic that you can create on stage and that different journey that different he wasn't in that male stripper sort of era he he was in a different era and he was creating on stage it was a theatrical performance i thought actually that movie was quite good because that's i feel like that's where i'm at in my life you know and it's not it's not sexy anymore. You know, people don't, I mean, if you look at my Instagram now, I'm just talking about environmental science. I'm just talking about, you know, agriculture and different ways that, in which you can do things. Um, my engagement has dropped significantly. I've lost, you know, 10,000 followers just from switching from. Just from putting cowboy. a shirt on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not entertaining anymore. Right. And that's why your reaction for that movie is just wasn't as entertaining <laughs> I because think that's hilarious. Yeah. Because yeah. you have this character, Magic Mike, and then he's moved away from that into, mm. into his next stage of, of life. And I think that's a good progression or good analogy for where I'm at. I guess at the moment, so I just wanted to move away from that. It was making me deeply unhappy. It was, um, not the way in which I wanted to do things anymore. That I always started um, that online persona with the intention to move into environmental science, straight environmental science eventually. I just was caught in a trap. I didn't know how to get out of it because that's what everyone wanted. Everyone wanted the environmental cowboy. I actually specifically had one person say to me, she asked me to speak in an event once, and um, I go, okay, cool. Do you want me to go as the environmental cowboy or Corey? And she's like, oh, well, I mean, everyone knows you as the environmental cowboy and I mean, it's more entertaining. So just, just go, go the environmental cowboy. And I actually started to develop a little bit of a complex about it <laughs> at one stage where no one actually wanted to talk to me. They wanted the, the cowboy. And I thought, well, that's, I mean, I'm just in a stage now where I wanted to be more authentic. I wanted to be, um, hold a higher level of integrity for myself. I wanted to be a leader in the industry. And to do that, you have to be yourself and you have to learn who that is i started to get caught up in that world i guess you would say i'll get caught up in 
I mean, if you created an online character, and I've seen it happen a number of times with other people that have created these sort of online characters, you end up becoming that character. That character was a half-smart, over-sexualized, egotistical, but sometimes clumsy, like self-depreciating as well, online persona, which worked. It was funny. And it, I can understand why it was funny, And um, but it just doesn't work for me anymore. And it didn't hold any integrity. And I was becoming someone that I didn't like anyway. I need to move away from that. And I'm now much happier, even though my engagement levels have really dropped. I mean, I was reaching 5 million people a week on Facebook at one stage with my Facebook statuses on Environmental Cowboy. And now I'd be lucky to reach 5,000 people now. But it has made me so much happier, the content that I'm now putting out. It's unbelievable. I don't care about the reach anymore. I'm putting out the, the messages that are truly important to me and that I think will make the, the big significant difference longer term. I think if I take one thing away or hopefully if our listeners take one thing away from from everything you've shared in this episode is that you know, you contentment and happiness comes from authenticity and that's you've gone from this journey of of being, you know, not I'm not saying that you were inauthentic as the environmental cowboy, but it sounds like you're really authentic now in who you are. Yeah, exactly. I've learned to let go, I guess, as well. Let go and forgive myself for my past mistakes, which was a really big step. That was the last step in my journey and it's quite been quite a recent one. I'd say that I'd really like to, to share um, with your listeners, if that's okay. I just really held on to things. I held on to the achievements or the goals that I had. I held on to people that I was in love with, uh, you know, I couldn't let go very easily. And I always thought that was because of, I mean, I'm a scientist. I back things with logic. So I looked at, you know, quantum entanglement. It's the, it's the theory behind, um, when two particles, two people become entangled and, uh, they are locked for life, basically. And so that's why you find it very hard to let go. And I always thought that that connection with people, that connection with a thing like that you're holding on to, like a goal or something, I thought that connection could remain unbroken i've recently learned that it you can break it you can let go and the first step to doing that is forgiving yourself for your mistakes that you made and whatever you you did or you have to learn to to forgive that part of yourself you you are not your past you're not your future yet either you are your present in this moment and and you have to remember that um, the past does not equal the future and you have to learn how to, um, if you want to get to the future, you have to learn how to let go of those past things and you can do that by changing your physical surroundings. And so so what I did was I, um sounds really silly, but I... I remember like watching a lot of funerals and, and um, stuff and people light like the, the uh, sort of, balloons or the lanterns and they fly them off into the, in the air now that's actually illegal in, in some states and it's not very environmentally no, friendly no it's not it's not <laughs> environmentally friendly either so um i thought of making a couple of rafts to represent the two things that i need to let go of a water raft made out of sticks and leaves and i put a candle on it and i wrote um a letter or not necessarily a letter but just a heap of things and thoughts and feelings and things that I needed to let go of and I floated them off into the water one night and the very next day uh, that was my process of letting go of forgiving myself and, and letting go and moving forward into a into a better world and um 
And the very next day, a lot of stuff happened for me in different ways than I wouldn't have expected. Things that I've wanted to happen, but happened for me in different ways. And I learned the science behind it. And you can actually break that quantum entanglement. You can break the connection with people that you once had or situations that were once gone. And you can let go of that in order to become your future or your a better version of yourself in the future. And so I, I just wanted to offer that, that, um, level of hope for people who may be struggling with something or, or someone in their lives and that they need to let go of or some situation they need to let go of is that it is, it is possible. You can forgive yourself and you can move on successfully in order to have uh, the future that we all deserve in the end. It has been such a privilege to record this episode and it's not what I thought an episode with the, and I'm using my little finger <laughs> bunny quote things here, guys, the environmental cowboy would be like, but you've been so incredibly candid. And that's what I love about these episodes when people just, they share things and I, and you know, you've shared it in your own context, but there's so much that people listening will be able to tap into, particularly also, especially what you said not too long ago about, you know, how, it, you know, the environmental cowboy came about and he was born out of, um, you know, sort of low self-esteem and what, and seeking this external validation that kind of hit home to me. I've, I've, yeah, even now, like I started off with a, a blog called Steph's Ag Ventures like 10 years ago. And that's how I kind of got into this space. But then I had to get rid of it at some stage because I just every like or lack of likes and shares and comments, even now I'm behind central station, but because I'm pretty much the main one doing it, I take the, the number of downloads we get everything very personally. I try not to, but I really do. But coming at it, you know, sharing that first of all, but sharing that as a male in the rural industry, I know it's mental health is so important, but it is still, we have to be honest, it is still more taboo for males to, so to hear, to have a male share that and be so vulnerable. Like it's just such a bloody privilege. So I'm so excited for this episode and I'm just so. Again, who would have thought, you know, we've, we've seen you online. Everyone's got their ideas and, and we've all certainly learned lots of stuff about the environment from you. But I don't think any of us could have predicted the story that was going on behind the scenes. Uh, I feel like this is a real coup. <laughs> I don't think anyone, oh, I don't think I could have predicted, um, the journey that I've been on. I think that's the, the beauty of life in the end though, is that we're all on our, own journey and um, we're all on our own journey of healing and forgiveness and that's part of the regeneration right is we need to learn how to heal each other as well as nature it's not just about the environment it's just not just about nature we can't do this without each other and going back to my original values of the left hand painted on the sandstone walls that contribution and understanding and the indigenous could do it the, the best out of everyone they understood how we are a part of nature and therefore a part of each other as well and what we do to nature do to nature we ultimately do to ourselves we, we have to learn better ways in which we talk to each other in which we look after each other and in which we heal and forgive each other and not only each other but ourselves so that we can all move forward into a into a more positive and more meaningful purposeful world and i guess i've just been on that journey and i'm still going on that journey and i will never get off that journey and i think that is one of the other beautiful things is that we are always learning we're always learning how to give and to be better within ourselves and um um so i really want to thank you as well for allowing me to share that story because it, it is quite nerve-wracking sometimes. It's the first time that I've shared something so personal to me and, and my own 
my own journey that I've been on, especially the last couple of years. It's uh, I don't know how to talk about it, I've, but I am hoping that someone can take something away from it. And knowing that we all go through hard times and that there is a light at the end of the tunnel if we're prepared to see it. We've gone through so many things in this episode and you've shared so many insights and lessons and and pieces of advice. And so for my final question, I'm going to make it really hard because you kind of have to choose (laughs) just one. But my final question to everyone is looking back on your story so far, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson? The major takeaway would be to believe in yourself and to surround yourself with the people that also believe in you and not to get so caught up in that world of achievement and validation like social media can suck us into. It's staying true to yourself and really noticing the small things, really noticing everything that you do around you because I missed a lot. I missed 10 years of it becoming so hyper-focused on career. Uh, I think it's important to smile at the person that walks past you in the morning. I think it's important to enjoy your morning coffee. I think it's important to look after your friends and the people that you hold close to you. I think it's important to get perspectives, other perspectives of life. Uh, You can't just rely on yourself, but you also have to believe in yourself and you also have to back yourself. And that's one thing that, you know, I've been a little bit self deprecating on, on this podcast where I've you know criticized myself a lot I guess um, but I'm also very proud of the way that I've held myself through everything that I've been through and I'm proud of the fact that I I um, always backed myself even now to this day with this carbon company I'm going through significant challenges and I'm backing myself all the way and I think it's important to do that but you have to find the people that will support you as well because that's equally as important you cannot do anything by yourself and I tried to and it didn't work so make sure you look after the people in your life and choose them carefully because you ultimately become your friends and the people that you surround yourself with. 